Well, we're going to be continuing our our series in the book of Romans. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 6, that's where we're going to be this morning. Lance covered the first half. I'm going to finish off the chapter. And the book of Romans is one of my favorite books. I've taught through it a few times, and every time I read it, I'm amazed by how much the Apostle Paul packed into this letter. It's so full of truth and application and wisdom. I think there's a lot to draw out of it. So we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 23, just the second half. And we're going to look at the relationship between our identity as Christians and our obedience as Christians, all right? our identity in Christ and our obedience to Christ. Now, this is a very important thing to talk about because when I first became a Christian, this was in college, I remember, you know, it was, it was sort of this huge deal in my life. I'm now, you know, I trusted Christ. I'm being, I've been forgiven of my sins. And I remember after that moment, and, you know, my friends found out and they were celebrating and it was a great thing. And, and then I remember like a few weeks after, I was like, okay, what now? And I'm forgiven. I'm a Christian now. Like, what, what am I supposed to do? And I think the Apostle Paul is tackling that very question. Now that we're in Christ, now that you have entrusted your life to Christ alone, what does that mean for your actual life? And the Apostle Paul, he's been talking about grace and forgiveness and the abundant mercy of God that covers all of our sins, the absolute kindness of God, all the way through from Romans chapter 1 up until this point. But then Paul after talking about all this grace, all this love, all this forgiveness, starts to give commands. He starts to call us to do something. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought this was about grace. I thought, like, we're cool, I could just coast. Well, he goes, no. No, you have to understand what grace is for. What does grace do? What does it mean now that you're a Christian? And, and the truth that he tries to, that he does put forth here is that who we are should have a transforming effect on what we do and how we live our lives. So I want you to pay attention to the ways that Paul exhorts us to obedience to Christ by appealing to our identity. I'm going to read the verses out loud. You can follow them in your Bibles or you can follow them on the screens above. This is Romans chapter 6, 15 to 23. What then? Are we to sin... Because we are not under law, but under grace. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray for our time in the Word together. Our Father, open up our hearts. May the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight. Change us, convict us, remind us of who you are and what you call us to. We pray also in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, um, one of my friends, he was, uh, he was a self-admitted backsliding Christian. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, he's just sort of like, I grew up in a Christian household, and I did the whole thing, and then came to college, and I just, you know, I, I, I still consider myself a Christian, kind of, but I just don't really want to listen to the Bible or obey. And, and I was, you know, I was a young Christian at the time, and I was kind of amazed by his candor. I'm like, oh, that's a pretty honest thing to say. And I was like, but man, don't you think you should, you know, be living a different way? And he said this, he said, well, you know, Brian, I believe that God's in control, and if he wants to change me, he just will. And I was like, what? <laughs> what, what in the world is this? That can't be right. That can't be right. But what he was touching on was, we think, okay, if, if this is all about God's grace, then that means there shouldn't be any effort involved on our part. There's nothing that we're called to, that we don't actually have to do anything. But the Apostle Paul says, actually, one, he anticipates that question. He goes, you know, Paul's kind of like, he says a bunch of stuff, and he's like, now you're probably thinking this, and you're like, oh, I was thinking that, right? So Paul anticipates these questions, and it's fascinating how he actually addresses them. And what he does is he connects our identity in Christ as people who've been brought from death to life, who've been brought from under the mastery of sin to now a new life of righteousness. He, he takes that new identity we have that's represented in our baptism and he applies that to our actual lives. He goes, if this is true of you, if you've been forgiven and washed clean of your sins, then live like a forgiven, washed person. This should flow out of your fingertips. This should be something that affects and transforms the way you view your life and the way that you live your life. And the question for all of us is, will we live a life that lines up with that new identity or not. Now, the first thing Paul does is he establishes this principle. He establishes this principle. He says, everybody serves somebody. Everybody serves somebody. So if you look at verse 15, Paul, again, he anticipates a question. He says, all the way up, if you've been tracking with me all the way up to this point, you're probably asking this question, right? What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Or maybe to put it more, in more modern terms, does God's grace mean we can sin as much as we want? We've all thought that, haven't we? Let's just admit it, right? And Paul goes, I kind of guessed that you would think this based on everything I've been saying. And his answer his immediate quick answer is this, by no means, absolutely not, that's crazy, stop thinking that, right? He's very clear. Why? What's the underlying logic? Again, everybody serves somebody. 
want to quote the great theologian Bob Dylan, who said, You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Nobody is neutral. And Paul says, look, you're going to have to serve somebody. You're either going to serve sin, which leads to death, or you're going to serve obedience, which leads to righteousness and eternal life. And those are the only two paths. Those are the only two trajectories. Death or righteousness. Now think about that contrast. Why does he say, on the one hand, if you sin, it's going to lead to death, but if you obey, you'd think, he would say, if you sin and lead to death, if you obey, it would lead to life. But he says righteousness. Why does he say that instead of life? Isn't life the opposite of death? But we have to remember that when we talk about eternal life, we're not just talking about a quantity of life living forever. It's a quality of life. It's a kind of life. Right? John 17.3 says, and this is eternal life. Here's the definition. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is not just a quantity of life, it's a quality of life. It's a life of knowing God, of knowing Jesus, and following him, and loving him. And if Christians are followers of Jesus, then we're going to live like Jesus lived. And how did Jesus live? He was righteous. If we follow in his footsteps, we're going to be righteous like he is righteous. That's what it means to be Christ-like. Now, if you flip that around, death is not just about a quantity of life or maybe a lack of quantity of life. It's not just the end of your physical life. It's a state of being. It's a state. You can be alive physically and be spiritually dead because you are cut off from God. You have turned your back on God. You have refused to listen to him. You've refused to believe him. You've cut yourself off from your creator who knows you and loves you and made you. That's the state of death. It's a state of moral decay, self-destruction, and all of it is a result from turning away from the very source of life himself, God. And you think, why would you ever cut yourself off from the source of life? Well, because we sin. All of us sin. We're all born sinners. Unfortunately, those cute little babies up here, they're sinners too. We're all born sinning. And it's sin that explains the contrast between these two phrases we saw earlier. Under the law and under grace. What do those terms mean? What is Paul talking about? Well, under law and under grace, they, they actually mark two periods of human history, right? Under the law is everything from Adam to Christ. The, the, the term refers to, uh, not that the law of God is bad, the law of God is holy, but what happens when the holy law of God interacts with sinners, right? There's conflict there. There's condemnation. When we face the righteous standard of God, we face his judgment. We face his condemnation. And, you know, I, I kind of, and, and not only that, Paul later on is going to say, you know, something else interesting happens when you see God's law, not only do you feel condemned by it, but it actually kind of makes you want to sin more. 
You know, the law is like a light that you flip on in a dark room and all these rats scurry out. That's your sin. Just like it just activates it. It makes you want to rebel even more. And so to be under the law is to be under sin's domination. And the law comes in and condemns you and actually pushes you further into sin. So that's one period of history. But there's another period of history under grace. That's a future age of pure righteousness. And what happens in the death and resurrection of Jesus is through the death and resurrection of Christ, that future age comes into the present. And you can actually begin to experience that future life now. Not perfectly, but progressively when you trust in Christ. That means that if you're a Christian, you're a person who no longer lives under the domination of sin. The law no longer condemns you because Christ died for you. And now the law no longer provokes you to sin. It actually pushes you and challenges you to righteousness. It's a guide, no longer a judge because of the resurrection of Christ. So to be under grace is not to say, forget about God's standard. It's now we can do it. We can do it without judgment looming over our heads. We can do this in freedom, empowered by the grace of God. That's a great privilege. And Paul's saying, look, if you're under grace, you should be like, why would I ever want to sin? I can now obey God. Not perfectly. But, but something has changed in me. And now I'm on a new trajectory as my heart continually is transformed into the image of Christ. Life under grace is a life where your loyalties have shifted from slavery to sin, and he uses a provocative statement, to slavery to God. Slavery to God. Slavery to God is freedom from sin. Slavery to God is freedom from sin. Now, in our individualistic world, we kind of think, when we talk about freedom, we think, well, freedom is the ability to do whatever I want. But in the Bible, and really in the ancient world, freedom was the ability to, to do what you were designed to do, to do as you ought. And what sin does is it blocks us from being the creatures, the men and women that God designed us to be. God made us to worship him. God made us to not find any rest in this world apart from him. And sin is our rebellion against that. It's our turning away from the very design that we have. You know, we're like a, if you pull a plant away from the sun, what happens? It shrivels. That's us. When we pull ourselves away from God, we shrivel. You bring it back to the sun, and what happens? We blossom. We bloom. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. Sin enslaves us and prevents us from being who God created us to be. But I love what he says here. He says in verse 17, but thanks be to God. What's he, what's he grateful to God for? That God did something for us when we were helpless, when we were enslaved. Slaves can't free themselves. They need someone from outside to unlock the chains. And that's what God did. Thanks be to God, he has freed us from slavery to sin, to a new life. And this is the whole point of Christianity. God has bought us out of our dark world or the, the evil in our hearts. He has pulled us away from that and brought us to his glorious light. He's adopted us as his own. He's brought us into his 
household. This is Exodus language. If you remember all the way back in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, what does God do? He hears the cries of his people in oppression, in slavery, and he delivers them. And he brings them out and says, I'm going to give you a land where you can worship me and you can live as free people. This is pure mercy and compassion. Before he even gives them the law, he redeems them. And then, as these newly freed slaves are walking through the wilderness, God goes, I want to teach you. I want to teach you what it means to be free. Here are my laws. So what does it mean to be a free person? Well, God tells us. He says in, in, in uh, verse 17, you were once slaves, but now, because Christ has saved you, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You were once slaves, but now you are obedient from the heart, from the core of your being. The heart is the seat of your deepest allegiances and loyalties and desires. It's, it's the rudder that steers everything in you. That core part of you has now become obedient to a new master, to a new standard. And it's a standard of teaching. What is that standard of teaching? It's the Word of God. Do you realize that when you became a Christian, God changed your heart so that your heart would be conformed to a new standard? His Word. God's very Word that carries with it His authority. Not some external moral transformation. It it starts internally. The teaching of Scripture the Word of God, this becomes the new guide for our lives. Not our feelings, not all of our desires and passions, but the standard, the new house rules that God has given us now that he has adopted us as his own. Now, this is where Paul says that the slavery metaphor breaks down. He actually says, look, because of your human limitations, this is just a metaphor. Because being a slave of God, we don't, we're not oppressed by God. He never mistreats us. He always does good to us. He's always kind and compassionate. He even dies on a cross for us. So this is where the metaphor breaks down, and Paul admits that. But the point he's trying to make here is the one continuity point between slavery in general and our slavery to God is this. That Whatever you used to do when you were enslaved to sin, your skills, your mind, all that stuff that you used in service of self, of the flesh, of sin, he goes, now that you become a Christian, you redirect that. You rechannel that towards God. He doesn't eliminate your personality or who you are or what your giftings are or your nature, any of that. But now he redirects it back toward its intended end. That's the reversal that the gospel gives. You were once on a downward spiral, right? You sin leads to lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness, right? Isn't that true? You sin a little bit in one area, and then it becomes easier to sin in that area again, and then again, and again, and again. It's a downward spiral. And God, by his mercy, he scoops us up, stops the downward spiral, and he puts us on a trajectory toward Righteousness. I love in Ephesians 4.28, the Apostle Paul, he says, former uh, thieves should not steal, 
but labor to share with anyone in need. So he's doing a case study. He goes, look, here's what the, how the gospel changes your life on a practical level. If you were once a thief, let's see, you use your intelligence, your hands, your cunning, all this stuff, you used it for self-gain, to sin against other people and to ultimately sin against God. And he goes, here's what I want you to do. Use that same intellect, those same hands, those same members of your body, and redirect it now. And do honest labor and share with people in need. Care for the people who are poor. Care for the people who need it around you. He doesn't eliminate our personalities. He redeems them. He doesn't eliminate our gifts. He redeems them and redirects them toward a greater end. This is why remembering our baptism is so key. Chapter 6 begins with Paul reminding us of what baptism symbolizes. Death to the old life, rising up to a new life. But you know what's amazing? Baptism is something that involves our physical bodies. Your bodies are washed. In other words, God claims your physical body for himself and for his service. He claims, he claims all of us. I, I was uh, thinking about, you know, whenever officers you know, are, are sworn in, they're given their badge. You know, there's nothing magical about that badge. But when they put it on, they put on that uniform, something changes in them. They feel a deep sense of responsibility now for the safety of a community. And they, there's a great standard now put upon their life. And the question is, will they live up to that new identity they've been given? They're given an identity, and then they're called to live out of that identity. And it's transformative. And baptism is like receiving that badge. It's receiving that uniform. It's receiving that sign that says, you're set apart now. God has claimed your body. You belong to him. He puts his name on you. You know, I remember um, there was this, there was, uh, there was this uh, author, she was speaking about, you know, when she had her child. Nobody asked her, nobody asked around, who's the mother? Because all the doctors they were around, they saw who the mother was. But they asked, who was the father? Why? Because a father has to claim the child. The father has to put his name on that child. Has to come up and says, I take responsibility for that child. I stand up. He's mine. He claims him. That's a powerful moment. And in baptism, God steps up and he claims us. You're mine. I put my name on you. You're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you internalize that, that has a transforming effect. You realize, this is the truest thing about me. I'm a son, I'm a daughter of God. And my body belongs to him. I want to live out that life. God has given us a new identity. But we can't experience or fulfill that new identity apart from faith. Right? If slavery to righteousness is freedom from sin, then slavery to sin is freedom from righteousness. That's what Paul is saying. And he goes, you know, look, to be righteous is not just to avoid sin. I mean, you could potentially live in a box, not talk to anybody, I guess never sin your whole life, maybe, although I doubt that. But even if you did that, that's not the standard. The standard is righteousness, that you do what is right no matter the cost. So you can avoid what is wrong, but it doesn't mean you're doing what is right no matter 
the cost. I love in the uh, Book of Common Prayer, there's a, there's a confession that you read where it says, God forgive us we have, for the things that we have left undone and those things which we ought to have done. So in other words, God, don't just forgive me for the sins I've done, but all those things I should have done and I didn't, Lord, forgive me for that. And none of us passes that test. That's the standard, the righteousness. Not just avoiding sin, but positively loving and caring and speaking and living righteously. Loving others as we love ourselves. None of us does that. And Paul even points out, he goes, all you who are Christians, when you're tempted to go back to your former life, I want you to stop and think, what was the fruit of that? Those things that you're now so ashamed of. Why would you want to go back? Sometimes it's that grass is always greener thing. I mean, think about the Israelites in the wilderness. They're, they're, they're freed out of oppression of 430 years of slavery, and they actually start to long for Egypt again because they don't like the cuisine that God gives them. They're giving them quail, and they're like, man, we had steak in Egypt. And this one little thing, and they forget. They forget all those years of slavery. And it leads them to ingratitude. And Paul says, remember, remember the outcome of your former life. Don't go back. Don't go back. And remember the good news. Here's the good news. Verse 23, he says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's very powerful language. Sin deserves the wage of death. The judgment of God is fair, right? When you work, you earn a wage, it's a matter of justice that you get that check, right? That you are getting what you deserve. But he says, when you think about salvation, it's a different equation. It's not you do these righteous things and then you deserve salvation. No, he says, actually, it's all a gift. Salvation is a gift. Condemnation is just what you deserve. Salvation is a pure, gracious gift that God gives to you freely at great cost to himself. And his motivation is love. His motivation is kindness to you. And how do you grab on to that gift? Well, that's faith. Faith is going, man, there's nothing in me. You've given me this gift. I'm going to hold on to that for all it's worth. I'm going to grab onto that. That's the gospel. That's what frees us from sin. That's what frees us from the condemnation. That's what covers us from God's judgment. It's not our New Year's resolutions. It's not our teary-eyed, you know, cries that we're going to do better this time. It's not our promises to turn a new leaf. It's the mercy of God. That's the only hope that we have. God came for us while we were yet sinners. And faith anchors itself to God's promises. God promises to you, if you come to Jesus Christ, I promise you will be forgiven for all of your sins. And I promise you will live a new life, a resurrected life. And think about the promises he gives to us in chapter 6. He says in verse 22, Listen to these promises. But now that you have been set free from sin, you've you've been set free from sin, I promise you that. And now you're slaves of God, and the fruit you you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So God promises you, look, if you trust me and you walk with me, 
I promise you, you're going to bear fruit in your life. And that fruit is going to transform you from the inside out. You're going to become a different person. You're going to be sanctified. You're going to be made holy progressively throughout your life. I promise you, if you trust me, if you put to death your sin and you walk with me, I'm going to change you. And the outcome of that is going to be eternal joy. So God saves us to bear fruit. He establishes our position first and then begins to change our behavior by bearing fruit. So here's the deal. When you obey, you don't obey to get saved. You obey to enjoy salvation. You could be married to somebody technically and be miserable. But loving the other person doesn't make you married. It's what makes you enjoy the marriage that you are in. And obedience to God is not what makes us Christians. It's how we enjoy the great blessing and privilege of being a Christian, of being loved by God, of being forgiven by God, of no longer being under law but under grace, no longer being under the dominion of sin but under God's kindness. Are you struggling with sin? Remember who you are. You have a new master. And even though it's a difficult battle, we all know that. Let's not pretend like it's not something we all face daily. But it's not a hopeless battle. And it begins by faith, by going, Lord, are you, are you telling me the truth? Are you really going to change me? Have you really forgiven me? And in the gospel is one big yes. One big yes. Grab a hold of those promises by faith. And remember who you are.